The Athletic Podcast Network is supported by the Quip Electric Toothbrush, the Tesla of toothbrushes, if you will. Most people's oral care habits could be a lot better. We often brush for less than two minutes and use old, worn-out bristles. Quip makes having a fresh, healthy mouth easy and convenient. Their electric toothbrush pulses every 30 seconds, so you clean your mouth evenly, and they deliver you new brush head refills every three months just like your dentist recommends. Get your first refill free at getquip.com slash listen. That's getquip.com slash listen. Welcome to the Back to Back Pod on the Athletic Podcast Network. This is Nerder She Wrote with your host, Dave Dufour. With Mo DeKeel and Seth Partner. Are you ready to be entertained? Hello and welcome to a new episode of Nerdishy Wrote on the Back to Back Podcast on the Athletic Podcast Network. Coming up on today's show, we are going to talk about how guys slip through the cracks in the scouting and drafting process and whether defense and effort are tied together. I'm your host, Dave DeFore, joined as always by my man, Mo DeKeel, and my other man, Seth Partnow. You see how, that, see how that's evolved over the course of the season, Seth? I like it. I still have you going second, though. I so, can't wait. Like, well, no, listen, that ain't you're listen, number two in the power rank. He's not. He's not. He's not jumping me. But also, Seth, <laughs> I just want to warn you that at some point, I can't wait for him to just not call you his friend again. Like it's like something's gonna happen. <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to that. Well, we are going to be spending a lot of time together in Chicago, so you never know. And if he gets you sick, uh, Seth, he might not be. You may not want to be friends with him. Before we get started on the show, I want to take a second and uh, and you know. Send our condolences to uh, Kevin O'Connor and his family, um, friend of the show, friend of mine, uh, friend of Seth's, I, I believe, also a friend of Mo. Um, great guy, uh, great family, and uh, he, he just lost his father. So we wanted to send our condolences out to the O'Connors and uh, and and all of their friends. Um, we're thinking about you, Kevin, and uh, you know it, it it'll get better, uh, guys. So in our group chat. We were talking about Terrence Davis the other day because this guy's having a ridiculous season and we have no idea how he went where he went. Toronto has got a gift for finding these guys in the draft, in, in undrafted free agents. Um, you guys have both worked for teams. I don't know how this works. How does this happen? Uh, the short version is it's A, it's really hard. Uh, B, uh, I think that there you get ideas of what guys in certain positions, certain roles are supposed to look like. <laughs> Excuse me. And when when guys sort of don't fit those those kind of preconceived boxes boxes, they're sort of easy to move to the side. Like obviously, okay, Zion doesn't have a box he goes into, but he's so superb that you don't he doesn't need a box. But like for lower down the pecking order, it's like, ooh, what positions that play? What does he do at our level? I'm not sure. And then he's kind of out of sight, out of mind. So I think that's half of it. And then the other half is certain teams are just better at identifying, you know, what skills a guy has and then are able to mold and fit him into a role where those skills matter. And maybe the things they don't do as well don't matter. And that's that's very easy to say and very hard to do. Yeah. And I think it's easy to like Seth said, it's so hard. There's so many guys that you're looking at. You know, you may not be able to see everybody, but you're dependent on your scouts. And sometimes your scouts may have a different view of things or, you know, nobody ever sees it the same way. You know, between the three of us, we may look at a player 
and we could have three very different opinions on one player. And I think that kind of tends to happen sometimes. And, and you run into those issues with scouting. It's, it's, I mean, look, man, there's only so many slots on a roster and there's so many freaking players out there. Well, no front office is going to hit a hundred percent. Right. And we see guys all, I mean, Draymond Green was a second round pick. Mono Ginobili, same thing. Right. So, so this is not a new phenomenon, but it does seem like a couple of teams have sort of figured it out. I mean, Toronto and Miami come to mind. Part of it is certainly in Toronto, they're, they're one of the teams that has really used their, their G League team to the fullest to be able to, you know, get guys in. A lot of times, you know, teams talk about getting a guy in and we're going to get them in our G League team and they're going to learn our system. And I'm not sure how true that is because the G League game and the NBA game are, are very different and the roles guys play. If they're an NBA or NBA kind of adjacent level talent, they're probably playing a different role in the G League than they do in the NBA. Uh, so everyone says they're doing, yeah, we'll get them in our program, blah, blah, blah. I feel like the Raptors and Heat probably do a better job of that than most teams so that they're actually, they're not just finding a role player. They're, they're almost building them, uh, from, you know, okay. Okay. Duncan Robinson. Okay. He's, he's got good size and he can shoot. What else do we need to have him learn how to do so he can become a useful rotation piece for, uh, for the Miami Heat? And then they go and, and they work on those things and, and they do it in the G League and then, you know, in, in player development sessions in practice and then throw him out there in preseason and it looks pretty good. And now he's, you know, a mainstay of the rotation. He, he might be the best three-point shooter in the league right now. It's him or Davis. He's damn close. But I think a lot of it goes to your development program as well, as Seth was alluding to. And I think, like, Miami does a great job of, like, when you come to Miami, they're stripping you down. Like, they want to come down and they want – they're going to make you – work and get into their mold you're going to get into shape you're going to otherwise you're not going to play there just ask james johnson you know and and you'll you know you, you got to kind of fit into that system and that's how they kind of do it you know toronto i mean besides just using their g league team and and that's right they probably use it better than anybody else i think houston's not far behind them but they're they're pretty high up there I think, you know, they have such a great job, a network of scouts that go everywhere. I mean, they have a European scout. They have a scout uh, in Africa. They have scouts all over the place trying to find these talents and constantly keeping a look as who's out there. And then sometimes some of these guys don't fit whatever program they're in. Like Kendrick Nunn's an example of a guy who probably could have helped Golden State this year. But I don't know necessarily if he would have fit in their offense or, or how they want to play last year or how they're going to play next year. I mean, he was in their G league system ends up in Miami and now it just kind of clicks there. Sometimes it takes a different place or, or, or things like, you know, we may not have seen um, Terrence Davis may not have the same success if he's in Houston than he does in Toronto because of just different things that happen, different situations, different coaches, different people reaching him. So I think that kind of plays a role into it as well. Toronto has shown a knack for this. I mean, when you go down their roster, it's a bunch of guys that, I mean, Fred Van Vliet, I mean, he's going to get paid a lot of money this summer. Terrace Davis, who we talked about, Pascal Siakam, who, you know, is like a top 25 player. Is this a case of understanding that there's a ton of value in in these wings that are high upside guys and, and taking a swing on some guys and then trusting your culture to just develop them? Or are they actually finding real diamonds in the rough that would have done this anywhere? Is this the part where I note that you just named three guys that are uh, uh, were much more highly thought of by kind of uh, metrics-based analysis than kind of traditional eye test scouting? Yes, uh, it is. I think it is. I think it is a point where I'll note that and... And that certainly 
Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't work every time, but you know, those are, those are certainly three success stories of, of kind of that level of, of scouting. Like, like Siakam was a guy who, you know, from a scouting standpoint, like what is he, but then he's just putting up absurd numbers in ways that like have in, in the past translated and like Terrence Davis is you look at his statistical profile and it's just like, okay, he's got, you know, good steals, blocks, shoots it pretty well, rebounds pretty well. Like, okay, he's a little bit older, doesn't, you know, isn't, isn't like a lights out shooter, but there's a lot to like about that. It's a guy you take a chance on. And then, you know, from his standpoint, it's probably fortunate that Kawhi went elsewhere because now all of a sudden there's that opportunity for him and he was good enough to take it. So it's, it's not just identifying the guy who has the raw talent and then molding him and then also the guy getting the opportunity to play in, in, in the system where he's he's kind of landed and that's that's a big part of it also is just getting getting that chance because there's not you know between the the 300th and 700th best basketball player in the world i don't think there's a lot of difference in terms of ability it's much more who lands in the right spot for their talents to come out so when when you're doing the statistical analysis for for draft scouting or whatever aside from i mean shooting and rebounding those transfer right those go up usually the next level. Is there anything else that, that we should be paying attention to when we're looking at these guys coming into the league? Um, uh, something that I've, that's, that, that's not really a hundred percent, but if you look at like a, like a college perimeter guys, steal and block percentage, uh, kind of interesting rule of thumb is if a guy's above 2% in both, that's a guy who maybe has like NBA athleticism because those tend to be uh, reasonably good indicators of, of not just like, you know, combine athleticism, but functional athleticism, ability to, you know, not just, you know, uh, run fast, jump high, but able to do it in a way that is is productive on the basketball court. And, you know, for his four years of college, Terrence Davis, 2.7 steal percent, 2.6 block percent for a 6'4 guy in the SEC. That's the kind of thing, hmm, interesting. You know, it's not, again, it's not 100%, but that's the kind of thing that makes you, uh, you know, another guy who had a cup of coffee with Dallas, um, I'm, I think Dallas and maybe one other team, a couple of years ago after being pretty good at – if you guys remember, uh, John Clavel was another guy who kind of, hmm, that's that's an interesting look. And, and okay, he may he didn't shoot it quite well enough to stick, but he showed kind of that that size and bounciness that if he could shoot, he's other like then, then he's a guy who could stick. And that's sort of the profile you're looking for. And then if they can make shots, then that's a guy you keep around. And so, so Mo, like from from a video perspective, you know, when you're looking at at tape of guys that are in the draft, I mean, how do you miss on guys who, you know, like one of the things that I've noticed about about the draft process is that there are plenty of guys that put up numbers in college that doesn't translate when they get into the NBA. Um, how do you how do you cut the wheat from the chaff there? I mean, it's hard. It's hard. Hell of a, a little phrase there, Dave. Um, it's it's hard. In that sense, just because you don't know necessarily everything that's going on. Like, look at the Kentucky guys. Like, they play a specific role in Kentucky. Like, Calipari has them doing specific things. And we never really get to see what they're fully capable of doing outside of that box, right? And, you know, from there, you know, they come into the NBA and it's like, oh, I didn't know this guy could do that. Or I didn't know he could do that. Or this guy could step out and shoot threes or, or whatnot. And I think that tends to happen mainly in college in the sense of these guys, these kids go into a system 
you know, and their their coach has them playing a specific way, and we don't get to fully see them take advantage of their skills. So it's hard in that sense when you're just scouting off a video. Like a good example of that is Russell Westbrook. He wasn't like this when he was at UCLA. Like, you know, uh, OKC looked at it and thought like, wow, he can he can get to another gear or whatnot. But when he was playing at UCLA, it wasn't like, man, this dude is a, you know, surefire winner or whatnot, like all this stuff. Like you kind of just don't see all of these skills sometimes and they don't translate in college. And also these kids are 18, 19 years old, you know, when they're playing like you got to This is why it's so tough as a scout is you got to project what this kid's going to be seven or eight years from now when they're 25, 26 years old. I mean, that ain't easy at all. And that's and that's where the challenges are. And, and, and on video, sometimes that stuff just doesn't show. So, you know, it's like I always say, you, the eye test and analytics go hand in hand. You know, I want to see their their stats and take a look at what they're doing and make sure there's nothing I'm missing when I'm when I'm watching them. So it's it's a bit challenging, man. I want to get back to the, to the Westbrook point. We'll, we'll probably circle back to that. But on the sort of the the eye test versus analytics question, which is always kind of weird, I sometimes wonder what the quote unquote eye test people are looking at because there there it does seem to be a player type that gets overvalued by at least a portion of talent evaluators that is sort of the toolsy guy who doesn't know the quote toolsy guy who doesn't know how to play. And that's kind of where that's I think where the the stats kind of fill the void. Like again, I mentioned like indications of functional athleticism. We've seen guys in the combine who jump out of the gym, run super fast, and then you look at their college numbers and they never get a rebound or block a shot. And so like how does that how does that match up? It's because it, the physical ability to do that doesn't mesh with their ability to figure out when to use those tools in games. And I feel like it, maybe it's like the overconfidence that, oh, with those kind of raw materials, he's, <clears throat> excuse me, he's 6'7 with a, with a 7'1 wingspan and, and you know, his shooting stroke isn't broken and therefore we can turn him into something, but doesn't have any demonstrated like feel for how to play basketball and at least at a, at a high level. And I'm just wondering, Mo, what, what you think about that? Is there that confidence that, okay, well, we can take these tools and, and teach the basketball part? Or is that something that probably people are overconfident in their ability to kind of mold players to that extent? I almost want to say it's arrogance, Seth, in the sense of like, as soon as we get him in our system, he'll we'll teach him and stuff like that. And we've known for a while, right, there hasn't been a lot of great coaching in high school and AAU basketball and college basketball, for that matter. Like these guys aren't there long enough with these with their coaches to fully get a, a improve their IQ or anything like that. So you're kind of just betting that when they come in, they'll be able to learn stuff and they'll be able to pick it up quickly or whatnot. That's kind of why in the draft process, those interviews really matter. And, and, and those kinds of things, you know, you're trying to get a feel for how does this guy think and, and whatnot and, and get that, that feel for him is like, Hey, if I throw a something out to him, will he be able to pick it up or how long will it take him to pick it up? I think what tends to happen is scouts get enamored too much with what they can do and then and their their athleticism or what they can be and not really look at whether they can actually get there or not or if that's a realistic thing. And I think a lot of that comes down to arrogance, thinking like when we get well, when we get him in our system, he'll fit in just fine. And I think that tends to be the problem more often than not. This is kind of like that, you know, if this guy can shoot, he's a real player. 
thing when most guys either can shoot or can't. You don't have a whole lot of guys that go from awful to average. You, you're, you're more likely to get an average shooter to go to good than an awful shooter to get to average. I mean, Seth, I, you've run I the would, numbers on this, right? I, I would take that a slightly different way. You, you kind of, you never are really sure who is going to be able to shoot. You can get some pretty good ideas of who won't be able to shoot. You know, certain indicators, like if a guy is shooting un, under, you know, thirty-three ish percent from three in college, and and under, and certainly under seventy percent from the free throw line, that's not a guy I'm betting on becoming an NBA three-point shooter. There's very few examples. It may have changed in the last couple of years, but just with the with the amount of emphasis put on you know three-point shooting uh, in in the pro game. Uh, as more guys try, more guys have probably learned. But for a while, like the example of that was Avery Bradley. And that was it of a guy who was just like a bad, like a non-shooter almost in college who became a, a credible to good NBA shooter. And um, I should couch that we're not including bigs because bigs are just, yeah, it's a right. totally different thing. They never right. shot the ball period. Right. Right. Yeah, so, um, but so, and then amongst the guys who do hit, who have hit shots, like, some of them will be able to continue to make shots and some of them won't. And um, there's a little bit of guesswork in figuring out which is which um, and whether that's that that guesswork is based on either kind of watching a guy shoot or getting to his shooting numbers. It's it's you know, you're you uh, a little bit you takes you, you pays your money and takes your chances on that a little bit. So that's a so I think that that's a skill where if a guy has maybe made shots before, um, you know, or has shown some inclination of making shots before, then you can kind of say, I don't know, maybe. But then the guys who's, who have never made a shot, you're kind of engaging in wishful thinking a little bit. Yeah, like, well, this is why I, I people were harping about Jaron Jackson's shooting form. And for me, the ball was going through the hoop, and that's what really mattered, and he's got nice touch. And so as we were seeing, like, he can actually shoot. Um, I, I think that there is a, a point where the eye test can get in the way. To a degree. I mean, I think the the questioning whether his shooting motion would extend NBA range, I think that's a fair question. It's not like, oh, he can't. It's like, well, no, he made shots. So, like, you know, he, he, like that's, that's a reason to wonder, but it's not a reason to say he can't, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. Uh, Mo, you brought up guys playing different roles, right? Uh, and, the, and the Kentucky guys are a perfect example of this. Um, I'd even argue uh, Malcolm Brogdon, another good example of this, and, and that we've seen not only a different role from NBA to or college to NBA, but then from the Bucks to the Pacers. He, he's got a different role and looks like a completely different player. But the Kentucky guys in particular, Carl Anthony Towns, one of the best three-point shooters in the league, not just bigs, but best three-point shooters, period, um, wasn't taking threes in Kentucky. Devin Booker was not running pick and rolls in Kentucky. Like we had no idea Devin Booker was going to be this guy. When you're watching tape, is there something in particular that you're looking for when you're trying to figure out if these guys can do more than they've been asked? I think you're. it's hard just watching tape because you can only do with the the footage you got in front of you, but you're trying to watch like their form. I mean, I I know we just talked about the shooting form and and it's a little bit overrated and stuff, but you're trying to to watch and see, you know, are they just going up with confidence when they're going up to rise up and shoot, you know, more than besides just their form and things like that. Like you're trying, you're trying your best to figure this stuff out. You're almost a detective 
right? Like what's he not showing that he can do, you know, or what's he trying to hide that this is something he really can't do. Um, and you're, you're, you're just constantly trying to figure this stuff out. And that's, that's the challenge with it. And it's hard on film in that sense to, to necessarily know that because we're just kind of a, a, a prisoner of what's in front of us in terms of the film. Like I, I don't want to project on a guy of like, man, you're going to be a great pick and roll player because you can dribble. That's not necessarily true, you know, and, 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 and that's me putting a, a, a kid in a role that he doesn't fit. And now that puts him at risk of washing out in the league. Right. And never finding that, that opportunity or, you know, he'll slip through the cracks and wash out with me. And then the Raptors will pick him up and being like, man, they were crazy to put you in pick and rolls, dude. You're, you're a, a run these guys off a screen type shooter, you know, type thing. And, and, and then it's like, oh crap, that's who he was. You know, it's, it's a bit challenging in that respect, but the roles is really interesting because I just find, especially now with the way the trade deadline is a lot of people's roles are going to have to change from what they were at the start of the season or, Oladipo comes back now Brogdon's got to change a little bit and they got to figure out how to how to make that work and I think that's where the this time of year it's really interesting to watch the roles you know being moved around on guys yeah no it's I'm, I'm glad you brought came back to Brogdon I was actually at the uh the, the Nets Pacers game the other night where uh uh Brooklyn uh kind of uh Spencer Dinwiddie uh hit a hit a long long jumper to win the game with about four seconds left and you could sort of see for a lot of the game um the 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 fit between Brogdon and Oladipo just was weird. It wasn't that they're not going to be able to play together. It's that without Oladipo there, Indiana's offense has been very predicated on early, you know, pick and roll for Brogdon, and then Brogdon get downhill or or spot the help and make the pass. And for the bulk of that game, they didn't do that. It was it was more like hey, let's let's run some continuity. Get get Vic the ball in his spots, and then maybe the ball comes back to Brogdon, and he was going far more east west than than north south. And I was I was actually talking about this on Twitter, and then I think to right at the start of the fourth quarter, they ran three straight middle pick and rolls early in the shot clock for for Brogdon with Oladipo on the bench, and he got a layup, a dunk, and I think he got a dunk for Miles Turner on the third one. And I was like, yeah, that's the, that's the stuff they were doing all year, and so. But because with with Oladipo kind of coming back into the fold, that shifts everyone's role a little bit, and now everyone's playing differently, and it's really hard to see how it's going to work out. And that's you know that that fits in with the guys, kind of the the lower end guys who you're trying to find the diamonds in the rough. But it also, I think, what we're seeing how like a change in role can can affect even the best players. Um, Dave and I were talking about this yesterday, like. Russell Westbrook might be playing the best basketball of his career right now. Guaranteed. I, I, and, I, I will stand by that. And and you think about what has kind of had to happen for him to be in that situation where you look and when was the last time Russ had one of those 7 of 27 games or, or, or something like that, where he – like his counting stats were fine, but his efficiency was, was, was awful. And he's – and because of the way Houston's gone to play with the middle completely empty – and not asking him to, you know, shoot threes and just get to the basket and finish and make plays and speed up the tempo and do those things that he's good at. Like he has been like actualized in a way that I'm not sure he has been since maybe since he was playing with Harden the last time. I th- listen, so what he's doing this season, it, it like he's getting to the basket more than he has since his rookie year. More more of the the highest percentage of attempts 
uh, since his rookie year at the basket. He's finishing like the last two years, last three years, actually, he's improved his finishing. He's at like 63% inside the, uh, in the, in the restricted area. And he's taking the fewest amount of threes since the 12, uh, 2012, 2013 season. I'm not shocked that the guy who is the worst high volume three point shooter in NBA history is more efficient because he's shooting fewer threes and attacking the basket more. Like it's not rocket science, but space around a guy that can get to the, to the rim. Like he can, can, it can cause chaos. I mean, he, he looks fantastic with shooters around. And, and and you touched on what I was about to say. I mean, the fact that he has space around it makes this so much easier for him to get to the rim than, than before. I mean, you imagine the, listen, when they had Steven Adams, Andre Roberson on the court, like, man, the, you, you just crushed him and you just let, you know, you pack the paint against the thunder at that point. And then, you know, now you, you can't cause he's got so many shooters, you know, that, that he can throw the ball out to. And he's a willing passer in that situation and finding those guys, especially the corner shooters for threes, you know, and, and his role has changed. One thing that's interesting, I don't know if you guys caught the, the Clipper Sixers game last night, but I mean, you know, Brett Brown's asking Al Horford to come off the bench. This is his first game since his rookie year, you know, coming off the bench. And that's a, that's a bold move from a coach asking a dude that they just signed a hundred million dollar deal over the summer you know, like, hey, this is this is what we're going to need for you from the team. But it's it looks like this actually really might help the Sixers. And I just think that all across the league, we're, we're, we're going to start seeing guys' roles kind of change a little bit as we co- come down to the last, you know, 30 or 40 games of the season. Uh, have you guys have you guys had a chance to watch Andrew Wiggins in Golden State? I know it's must watch appointment viewing. I have not. I, I, ha- I have not had the pleasure yet. Of, OK. Uh, so I'm a believer in culture, and I wanted to see what was going to happen with Wiggins. I, I think he's been – Wiggins is actually having a, a pretty good season, and, and and I think he gets a little bit of an unfair shake uh, given what his role was in Minnesota and you know how that team operates. The number one takeaway I have, though, is that I see his effort not only – on you know trying to rebound, trying to get into position because he's an awful rebound for a guy with his physical tools. You know to to go back to your point, Seth. But defensively, his effort is there. He's not a good defender, but he's trying hard. And it brings me to the point. Something else we you know we we've talked about uh, amongst ourselves. There's this myth that defense is all about effort. It is just not. It is a skill. Defending is a skill. I will die on this hill uh, with every old basketball coach. Trying hard is great, and it helps. It's hard to be a good defender if you're not willing to try hard, but you got to be skilled to be able to pull it off. You know what's better than trying hard on defense is trying smart. Um, you can you can and there's been people who've done that. I'm not sure how much of it is is is. Been super well publicized, but you can look and see the players who expend the most effort on energy are young players. The players who, from any kind of statistical measure, are bad defenders are young players. So there's like just efforting is not is not where it's at. Yes, you need to when you're deciding what you want to do, you need to be doing that at maximal effort. But that effort is as much about the mental recognition decision making process reaction reaction time as it is about you know run really hard um and and you know they're going so many of the guys who've been bad defenders it's always lazy it's like the the the, like the poster child for this in the previous decade was amari stoudemire i thought amari stoudemire generally speaking competed on defense he just didn't know where he's supposed to be 
And so he's all if he's always a step or two late, a second or two late, then he, yeah, he's late. But it's not that he's not sprinting to get into position. It's that he started, you know, a, a half second after everyone else. Like Larry Bird was a good positional defender, not because he moved really fast. It's because he moved really early. Yeah, getting beat back door, right? Uh, that's a that's a hallmark of a guy that we would point out as a bad defender. There are plenty of guys that do it in the league. Doesn't mean you're lazy at all. It can, it but, can, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're lazy. I mean, effort plays a role in everything, right? Like it's you, it's it's kind of silly to just say like effort's all you need defensively. Everything Seth said is true. I mean, there's a whole slew of guys who would would be. Maybe not even average, but just not as bad defenders as they are now if they put a little more effort in. But it's not like if they put effort in, Trey Young's all of a sudden going to become a lockdown defender. Like that's just that's just asinine. Like that's just a dumb idea in that sense, right? Like if he tried to, I feel like if he pushed a little harder, if he fought through screens harder and things like that, he might be okay. But it's not like I'm going to feel like, man, I feel good about Trey Young as a defender. I think overall, you know, IQ matters, you know, like using the Larry Bird example, Larry Bird knew he was slow, so he knew he had to get there early, you know, and, 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 and get to that spot. But he also was smart enough to see where the play was going and the spots he needed to get to. And I think IQ is something that that's really huge in de- defense. I mean, Draymond's one of the smartest guys defensively we've seen in years, you know, uh, Andre Iguodala, another guy, you know, it's, it's not all effort. You know, and I think it's kind of just pretty lazy on the person who says it's all effort. Like that's a person that's putting no effort into the opinion of that. The coaches who say that and things like that. It's much more than that. How much time do you just to give people an idea, like when you're getting into preseason, how much time does it take to just get a team's you know, basic rotations in place in terms of of whose responsibility is to go where against, you know, basic actions, because that's that was always something that struck me is, you know, preseason, early season, how much time is spent on, you know, okay, your your job is to tag and then recover and then you X out and blah, blah, blah. It's that stuff that's like pretty complicated. And if it doesn't happen like, you know, like that, I snap my fingers in case I can hear, but it doesn't happen like that. You're too late. And that's not, it's not an effort thing so much as it is a recognition and understanding. And yeah, there's a mental effort component to that, but that's not like, that's not sweat equity so much, is it? No. And it's, you know, the thing is, Seth, it's like, this is something you do all the time, you know, and, and you, you know, you, you do, you work on it the entire preseason training camp, you know, I was part of teams where we did shell drill every day, you know, and that was 20 minutes each practice. We're doing shell drill just to hammer in the rotations over and over again. And this is what we're doing in this situation. And that's what you do. And and it's it's a whole year thing. You know, the 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 whole system kind of takes a long time to put in. Now, some guys, obviously veterans who've been there a while, have a better understanding. Rookies, it takes them a while. You know, it's always kind of surprising to see a rookie kind of come out and be great defensively off the bat in terms of rotations and things like that. And I don't think people realize the NBA game's so damn fast. You take a misstep, a half step the wrong way, you're it, it's over, you know, and that's not an effort. You just you, you just screwed up. There's a big difference between that. And it I mean, God, a, it just takes so long to put together. And it's something you hammer in all year, you know, and. 
we always we always see it we always see it with teams who have slippage, right? That term like defensive slippage, just because they haven't had practice in a while where they can tighten that up and, and and almost have a refresher course. And if you can find guys who aren't great but will try hard and and do their role, they don't have to, you know, have the highest defensive IQ. They're gonna make mistakes, but on average they're gonna be okay. So there is a there is a point where effort does matter a little bit for bad defenders, but it's about being smart enough to understand your role and know what you're supposed to do. It's more choreography at, at that point. And, and this is like the Trey Young thing, right? Right. You can effort your way out of position pretty easily. And then the next guy in kind of, you know, you say choreography, like the next guy in the dance line is like, well, where do I go now? He's like, if, if, if you're not where you're supposed to be, like, do I stick with my responsibility? Do I cover for you? Um, and, and then on down the chain. So it's, it's, you know, you can very easily, you know, we tend to, people watching tend to overvalue the guys we see flying around because, you know, the human eye is drawn to movement and I, oh, that guy's flying around. He's great defense. It's like, it's probably better if he didn't have to do that. And that's, you know, Tim, you never saw Tim Duncan sprinting on defense. And I've said this before, but, but. If you want to like a real basketball defense education, if you want to actually learn about defense, go watch Draymond Green. Maybe not this season, okay? Uh, but go watch Draymond Green and just watch him on defense for a whole game. Watch how he quarterbacks. Watch how he executes a scram switch. He knows those switches are coming. You know, two rotations ahead, and he's already prepping for that. He's getting his feet set up. But you know, it's like when you look at it defensively like we always talk about the the rotations and like you said well oh guy i'm getting so old i already forgotten which one of you guys said it but talking about when somebody screws up the the choreograph or doesn't make the rotation this was my thing about lebron always not playing defense during the regular season was like well his team has now learned how to defend and rotate around him and now when he starts to rotate in the playoffs these guys are already so used to making that rotation then now you have two guys going to the ball and now somebody's wide open. And I think that's where the choreography comes into. That's that dance and that's that whole thing where everybody's got to be on the same page, move on a string, whatever other defensive cliches we can come up, come up with, you know, that all comes to play in this whole thing. And it's, you know, uh, I love what Seth just said, you know, the, sometimes you can effort yourself out of position and, 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 and put yourself in a bad, a bad way. I mean, how many times have we seen guys fly by in a closeout and then just stop? I mean, defense is multiple, multiple plays, you know, and, and, you know, you gotta, you fly by now you got to run back in and you got to get back into the play somehow. Like that's just, that's defense. It's, it's across the board there. And sometimes it's not about running at the shooter, but just standing and, and stunting real quick or something like that. So, you know, it, it just this whole effort thing is just too much sometimes. And one like kind of one more point just to just to build on that a little bit is we talk about hero ball a lot on offense. You can hero ball defensively, too. And that's kind of what, you know, a little bit what you're talking about, Mo, right? The everyone's expecting you to do one thing, try to make like the, the great, the great game winning play instead of just like the solid defensive play. And now you've got two guys on the ball where the ball wasn't a threat and someone's wide open for three because you were, you were, because you were trying to be the hero and make the great game saving play instead of just like, you know, being in scheme and, and trusting the system. Yeah. And I think the, the, the greatest example of a guy 
is Hassan Whiteside, right? Like Hassan Whiteside, who chases blocks, gives up defensive rebounds and dump offs over and over again, right? Like he's just thinking like, I need to get this block shot. I need to get these, I need to get there. And he's thinking he's doing good defense, playing what a good def- defense. But the thing is, he's putting himself out of position. And now, you know, he's got guards that got to sort of drop back and take his man. And that's not always a good situation there. And, and, and I think that kind of plays into what you were saying. The chain on defense is only as strong as its weakest link. And so when one guy gets himself out of out of position, and this has been an argument uh, about mine uh, of mine against Westbrook, is, is that, you know, in, in past years, jumping out for steals and things like that, then everyone else has to cover for him. And it's like Mo just said with, you know, guys executing hard closeouts, flying by, and now all of a sudden you've got five on four essentially. And so, you know, if you can just, you don't have to even be a great athlete to be a good defender, but you got to be smart. It's impossible because there's so many actions in a given, you know, possession. It is impossible to be a dumb defender and a good defender at the same time. I'm sure they exist. I'm sure that like someone's going to give me 10 examples of a guy who's like a low IQ type defensive player who somehow is still amazing. Um, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. There isn't one. Guys can be effective in certain situations. I mean, like, you know, Hassan Whiteside, if he's there, is a fairly sizable deterrent at the rim. But you can, you know, move him around. There's guys who are uh, who are really solid, very, like, excellent on-ball defenders who if you maybe have an isolation score, you can just throw them out of. Um, you know, a guy who I thought was has a reputation and the numbers kind of back it up as being a a pretty poor overall defender. Uh, Jabari Parker, actually, if you, you know, against certain types of isolation scores, he could hold up pretty well against like a, like a, a couple of years ago. He actually guarded Jimmy Butler very well for several games um, because Jimmy Butler is just going to have the ball and face him up and try to do something. And he did fine in that role. But then, you know, the. You, you go off the ball and have to follow different actions, and then all of a sudden, you know the the outcomes aren't as good. Um, and that's so that's where now this is funny because this yeah. is going to sound counterintuitive, but guys who are bad off the ball, like Wiggins or Parker, I have I've found great success sticking them on the basketball because it's it's you only have to worry about guarding your man and and maybe navigating a screen. It's when you are relying on those guys as helpers. Uh, you know, watching for for guys off the ball that the low IQ, you know, defensive stuff kind of rears its ugly head. It's not it's not even that it's the it's the second and third rotation, right? Like how many teams have we seen where they do a good job making they tag the roller coming down on the pick and roll and somebody makes the rotation when the ball goes out to the corner, but nobody goes to the guy above the break for the three. You know, it's just that. It's that second, that third rotation where you're supposed to go and and those things. Because I, I agree with you, Dave. I mean, I used to say that about Nick Young. Nick Young was pretty solid as a one-on-one defender. He was god-awful off the ball. I mean, his attention span was elsewhere. And just, you know, I used to wonder if he was even watching the ball. But, you know, it, it's that kind of stuff where that, that second and third iteration where it loses guys. And that's where the IQ comes in. Yeah. Um, and I should... I should circle back just quickly to define what a scram switch is. Uh, a scram switch is like uh, you get Steph Curry switched on a big and he's posted up on the post entry pass. Draymond Green will come over and make the switch with Steph. And, and those two 
I mean, Steph, by the way, should also get credit for taking part in this in the scram switch himself because he gets out to the weak side as good as anybody. Um, but the way Draymond executes that switch is second to none. I mean, he's the best in the league at that. Um, I, Draymond's going to be an amazing coach, I think. Like he's gonna he's gonna win a national national championship as a college coach. You guys disagree with me? I think he's gonna be great. He's gonna be fantastic. Um, I don't know about okay. That. <laughs> so so uh, as we wrap up, we've got the All Star Game coming up, All Star Weekend. Seth and I are gonna be out in Chicago, uh, freezing apparently, and we're gonna be you know sitting down with tough a enough, bunch of people. Man. Tough enough. Yeah. I listen. I've, I've lived in Arizona and Texas for the last five years. Uh, my my skin is now thin. Um, so we're going to be uh, putting out stuff next week uh, that, that we do while we're in Chicago. Um, but I thought this would be a good time for us as we close on this week's episode to, you know, talk about our takeaways from the first part of the season. I mean, it's not really half because we're, we're, you know, like 50 games or whatever. Um, but, you know, the all-star break being like a milestone, good time to look back on the first half of the season and then sort of look ahead. So, uh, Mo, like, give me like just one big takeaway from the first half of the season. Just basketball is good, man. This has been a fun season across the board. We've had a ton of great games. Even last night's Sixers Clippers game was a lot of fun. Even the Boston Houston game was a ton of fun as well. So I just think we're getting a lot of great games out of here. And when we got a ton of fun teams to watch that's really kind of my biggest takeaway is basketball is good really excited to just kind of watch the rocket small ball experiment continue on uh and then i want to watch the uh i want to see how the sixers do if and if they stick with this uh horford coming off the bench thing so i'm gonna agree with mo for the second half of the or the last part of the season watching the rockets i haven't decided if i find them as more like aesthetically pleasing or more intellectually stimulating right now but it's somewhere in there they're they, they may not be attractive but they're minimum they're minimum interesting to watch now first half of the season is just how good some of these these eastern teams that i didn't think that that we all thought were going to be kind of a tear down are are going to be like like you know toronto obviously uh and boston especially like those in miami also um and just seeing how well they maintain how well they can kind of be kind of a more an a nuisance or maybe even more than that in a playoff setting. I mean, especially Toronto, because, you know, uh, uh, you want to talk about a team that has um, unlimited self-belief and, and the degree to which that might matter in, in a, in a tough postseason series. I mean, that's the team right there. So the, the so those are, the, those are kind of my takeaways coming in and going out of, of the all-star break. Uh, for me, the first half is that Nick nurse is a wizard. And um, we might be like three years away from, from talking about this guy as one of the 10 best basketball coaches of all time. I mean, he is just when it comes to being creative and, and, you know, making it work. I mean, he's been holding this team together with duct tape and zip ties, essentially, like with all the injuries that they've had and, you know, watching how they've developed players during the season. Even uh, I just think that he has been far and away the best coach in the league, probably for the last calendar year. And uh, I think going forward, I, I don't I don't see him slowing down there uh, at all. Um, that's my biggest takeaway from the first half of the season. Uh, looking forward, at, like I'm with you, Seth. I, the the East, the top half of the East, and that's Milwaukee, Miami, Boston, and Toronto. That is going to be a bloodbath. The playoffs are going to be just uh, the Eastern playoffs are going to be sick. 
That's it. It is going to be a war and the styles are going to be all over the place. We're going to have games where we're going to see, you know, like 50% of defensive possessions are going to be zone in, in some of these series Um, for anyone. and, And Seth, you made this point the other day for anyone who is complaining that everyone just does the same stuff. There is no way you're watching the NBA right now. It is the most stylistically variant the league has ever been between the crazy stuff happening in Houston. We don't even talk enough about Boston and how they've been playing pretty small all year. Uh, you know, not quite as small as Houston's going, but pretty small. I mean, Tice is what, six, eight, um, you know, between that, what Toronto does, obviously teams going big again, other teams still kind of in the middle. Um, I just think the league is in a really, really fun spot if you're a basketball nerd. And so, yeah, going forward, that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. I want to see which style winds up winning in a year where we don't have the Golden State juggernaut. I also think the West playoffs is going to be insane too, Dave. Like, I mean, just look at the – if Portland or New Orleans gets the eight seed and, and, and the Lakers got to go up against Dame or Zion – like that's crazy. The the Rockets and in, in Utah would be a clash of uh, styles right there. Uh, uh, I mean, shoot, Denver. We'll, we'll find out if they're a playoff team or or if they're really just a regular season team. Like I just think the whole playoffs in general is is going to be amazing. I, I I can't wait for all this. Well, that's going to do it for this week, folks. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to us over uh, wherever you listen to podcasts and uh, go subscribe to the Athletic. A lot of good stuff happening right now. We're going to have a ton of content coming out of All-Star Weekend. And uh, Seth and I will uh, be producing a new or a a special episode for next week uh, live from Chicago. Thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon.